This is the Yada Yada Podcast, where we get to the heart of the Christian sexual ethic with biblical truths and real talk about sex, purity, and relationships. We're your hosts, Ashley and Amber from Across My Heart Ministries. Welcome to episode four. We are going to be diving into the history of the sexual revolution today. And I'm a little bit geeked out because I love history. Yep. You're the resident history nerd. And I specifically love 20th century history. I have to say that out of out of history, 20th century history is probably my favorite as well. As far as – see, you actually – are more into history, but I actually went through a season of teaching history. Yes, that's true. Uh, I teach for the homeschool community. and You taught a I 20th did 20, century yeah, class, right? Yeah, for, for middle school. And I actually really, I really did enjoy that. Oh, and I did uh, 20th century for elementary as well. 20th century and ancient were like my two favorites when I did history. Yeah, I love early church, or actually not early church history, Um church history kind of in the medieval period. And that was not my favorite. Because, yeah, you also taught medieval history I, for a short I, I did, period. just in elementary, for elementary. And then 20th century was my absolute favorite. I took it in way back in middle school, but I specifically fell in love with the 1970s in high school when I had to do a very intensive report. And mm-hmm. I remember my uncle... I thought it was so cool because he got down his record player from his attic and like the rest was the rest was history. Yeah, vinyl records. That that was the moment where you fell in love with the seventies and the aesthetic Volkswagen buses. Spend the ins- your decoration inspiration and avocado kitchen. Wardrobe inspiration now for years. <laughs> My home is slowly like becoming a time capsule of yeah. the nineteen seventies. But I am excited. To be talking a little bit about um, history in that era, but also kind of throughout the 20th century and what shapes our understanding of the sexual revolution today. Because really to understand where we're at now, we have to understand where we came from. That is a very, very true and just a very important concept in general, actually. I want to introduce you to kind of the icon of it all. A man who is dubbed the father of the sexual revolution. His name was Alfred Kinsey. And let me set the stage for you. It's the early 1940s. He was raised in a conservative home. He attended church. And he was told to repress any sexual desires that he had, to stuff them down. Don't talk about it. Like any good, you know, church boy in that era. And this was an unfortunate reality very unfortunate reality of the way that sexuality was handled. Mm -hmm. Because as he grew up, he became naturally curious. Yeah. Because we are sexual beings. Mm -hmm. God created us that way. And so as he became curious about his sexuality, he started to do actually scientific research, which seems like a pretty noble way on the outset. To explore something that was forbidden in his youth. He was a professor at Indiana State University. But his agenda was sexual liberation. Because he wanted freedom. To do the things that were only done in the dark. Mm. So he was setting out to prove that sexual behaviors that were being done in secret should be brought into the light. 
as natural and normal sexual behavior. His research sought to normalize things like abortion, pornography, prostitution, homosexuality, pedophilia, masturbation, and bestiality. He published his findings, infamously called the Kinsey Reports, and these findings, they shocked the public. They shocked people to, to, to realize that seemingly dark practices could actually be normal. And the implication was, if it's normal, if a lot of people are doing this, if statistics are showing that these behaviors are common, then they must be okay. Normal mm. means they're moral. Yeah. Of course, we know that line of logic is false. Very, very faulty. But unfortunately, that is how we as humans... Yeah, that's how a lot of people base their morality. Mm -hmm. If everybody's doing it. And so according to his findings, um, if you read the reports, he claimed that prostitution was normal, that women actually experienced no regret after having an abortion. Um, he claimed things like adultery was beneficial for marriages that children should be allowed to experience sexual pleasure. Um, he claimed that 71% of women claimed that their affairs didn't hurt their marriages at all. A few even said that they helped. He said that 69% of men had been with prostitutes, again, normalizing prostitution. So these, these statistics, they really don't matter. I don't need to read them to you because they're false. These statistics were not actually grounded in reality because what he didn't share was that his his source, the people that he went to, were 55% of them were criminals. Oh, so his data was skewed from the beginning. Yes. He, he interviewed pimps and, and actually pedophiles. He sought out pedophiles to study. So so things that he claimed were normal, they Not, weren't like the average American that he was going and, no. and interviewing. He was interviewing a very specific group of people. He actually sought out people who were mentally dysfunctional. He, he interviewed prostitutes. He actually, he said that a prostitute, if they'd been huh. with a pimp for over a certain amount of time, he treated those people as husband and wife in his studies, as like partners. Wow. So, it so was, he was really, he was, he was looking in his research, he really specifically was looking to get a, a outcome mm -hmm. and he tailored his research so that he got the outcome that he wanted. Yeah. Which if you didn't already know this or realize this, that's very, very bad research and really horrible research for him. He was an awful scientist. And that's one of the reasons why when you hear statistics or look at a scientific study or a finding a scientific study, you really should look at how that scientist did their study. Mm. Because, uh, yeah, a lot of, I, I shouldn't say a lot of research, but research can sometimes be especially if you know you start getting into the realm of of public opinion can be done to try and waver one side one way or the other people's opinions justify their behavior yeah in so. which case that's exactly what he was trying to do and unfortunately the truth about his research didn't come out until years later um, and so his research if you even want to call it that was used to help win many court cases that helped legalize abortion and pornography. And actually, his research is still being used today. Um, it's being quoted. There's actually a research institute that still exists in his name. That's just crazy. Yep. I think it's – I don't want to say this for sure. I think it's – I think it's at Indiana State University. 
Yeah, they have a statue erected in his honor. A movie about his life that Liam Neeson was in. To, to honor him. Because he helped legalize pornography and abortion. And they see that as being a good thing. Wow. But the truth continues to come out about his research. That in his research, um, he ordered for anywhere from 317 to up to 2,035 infants and minors to be abused in the name of science. That um, it was actually research that was done by pedophiles. With a with a stopwatch. It's just so crazy that that it's still wow. That I, I do find that a little I do find that shocking. But I guess maybe I shouldn't, but it's very surprising that even with all of that the stuff that has come out that it's still something that is and it's actually surprising that even it was used to to win cases mm-hmm. and nobody and I, I guess I don't want to say nobody looked, but nobody cared or they ignored the how it was done. And I guess that just goes to show you when there is a agenda. <laughs> yeah. Well, pedophilic organizations and academic papers that are seeking to justify pedophilia are using his research. Yeah. Still to this day. Mm-hmm. And yet other groups that are, you know, praising advancements in pornography and abortion are also... I mean, I, I would think they don't want to be associated with the pedophilia, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they're still championing him as a hero. And so how can they not see that you can't separate out this man's study of work? It, it was all one body of work that he was trying to um, advance this sexually deviant and bring these thing, these dark things into the light. And it is dark. It's evil. And his work was read originally um, when it was coming out by a very impressionable young man in college at the time who we all know by the name of Hugh Hefner. And so Hugh Hefner would actually take clips of Kinsey's work. And when he first started passing around his, I don't know if he used the name Playboy at that time, but his, his magazines that he was starting to publish, he would have Kinsey's work alongside it to help justify that this immoral behavior was normal. Wow. And capitalize on it. So at so this, one man's impact on society. Yeah. Impacted another man's work. Who, which has been had a huge impact on society. And all at the same time. So we're not just talking about, you know, these men. There's a woman who is often called the mother of the sexual revolution. Her name was Helen Gurley Brown. And she became the chief editor of the Cosmopolitan magazine. And when she did, she turned it into the sexually driven magazine that it is today. So Cosmo originally was a magazine that had like a women's magazine that had to do with like, yeah, women's health, homemaking, things like that. And then she turned it into uh, really a marketing of a sexual lifestyle. And in order to do that, she falsified stories and quotes in order to paint a glamorous picture of the consumer-driven lifestyle that's filled with fast fashion, a big career, and even bigger sex lives. The ideal Cosmo woman could get the man, dump the man, and find a new man all in the same night. That sounds like it literally inspired the show Sex in the City. It did. It did. Oh, it did. Okay. Yep. But if you want it all, you can have it all. Um, (laughs) And forget marriage and family. 
And remember, abortion is every woman's right. And that was something that was really marketed and targeted to this audience. They were trying to sell a lifestyle that, again, was falsified. They couldn't even find women that were living this life. So they would come up with stories and quotes about false women. And the editors have since come forward sharing their stories about what it was like writing for the magazine during the time that Helen Gurley Brown ran it as chief editor. Wow. The writers were like saying that the things they were painting a lifestyle that didn't even exist and painting it out to be some ideal. Wow. In fact, the reality was that most women, most working women that were in the feminist movement at the time trying to find equality in the workplace for women, most of these feminists were, maybe I shouldn't say most, I should say plenty of them were pro-life. Mm-hmm. So we think- They weren't a minority. No. And I think sometimes we lump in all these issues like, oh, so these women who were pushing for women's rights in this era, they were also pro-abortion. Mm-hmm. That's not an accurate picture. That's what was being advertised and marketed. Mm-hmm. But the truth, if you actually dive into the history, is that the premier feminist organization at the time, the National, the national Organization for Women, they actually lost a third of their members the night that they voted to include on-demand abortion as part of their legislation. The women actually walked out of the room. Wow. Yeah, that's something you don't really hear about. That they stood up for what was right. And they walked out. And the next day when it was on all of the, you know, New York Times headlines, Washington Post, you know, whoever was reporting, they left that completely out of the story. And they just said that this is what women want. The women's movement wants on-demand abortion. And so that pro-life, you know, feminist who existed in that era completely lost her voice. Hmm. And the women's movement, you know, continued onward. Sounds sort of like some people had an agenda, which then they manipulated yeah. <laughs> into, the, into the dominant narrative. Because now, unfortunately, the, in a lot of ways, the women's rights movement is pretty inseparable from abortion. Yeah. Like when you think today about women's rights. Abortion is right up there at the it's top. It's always included. Mm-hmm. And that's so sad. Because the sexual revolution was propelled by lies. Like, that wasn't even true. Yeah. But, I mean, but when we look back and reflect on how this all started, I mean, just like Eve thought the promise of the forbidden fruit sounded so good, we can see how, as a society, we've fallen for the lie that the world knows sex better than God does. Mm-hmm. We can see that the roots of the sexual revolution actually began growing way back in the garden. In the Garden of Eden, when Eve didn't want to be who God created her to be. She wasn't content being a woman. She wanted to be in control. She wanted to be God. And so much, uh, so much sin in our lives really boils down to that. We want to be our own God. We want to be, we want to decide what is right and wrong. We don't want somebody deciding that for us. It's right. not enough that we're just created in his image. We want to make the calls. 
Yeah, and we don't want to just be like God. We want to be God. We want yeah. to be our own gods. Yeah, That's we want to be the king of our own. So much of where our lives. sin originates. It is. It's so much of where sin originates. And uh, there's a quote that I read. Uh, it's by Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot from the book Let Me Be a Woman. And it really, oh, I just, I read, I read this quote. And I was like, that's so good. And resonates so much. And I knew immediately after I read it, I sent it to Ash. I'm like, this is going to fit into some talk somewhere because it's so good. Uh, and it says, what sort of world might it have been if Eve had refused the serpent's offer and had said to him instead, let me not be like God, but let me be what I was made to be. Let me be a woman. Mm, that is such a good quote. And I love that it really emphasizes that we need to be who God created us to be. Yeah. And the reality is we were created to reflect his image. Mm -hmm. So in a way, we were created to be like God, but we weren't created to be God. We weren't created to be our own gods. And that's where Satan's lie was so sneaky in Genesis 3, mm -hmm. verses 4 and 5. Because what he told Eve is, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he told her something that in a sense was already true about her identity, that she was created to be like God. Um, she was already made in his image as a beautiful reflection of him. But he was trying to twist that into something different than what it was. Mm -hmm. And that's so much of what Satan's lies and sin does is it there's always like a little bit of truth there. Uh-huh. And maybe even a little bit of like something that we can write off as a good motivation. Yeah, seems like, good. Seems the good. Like bait oh, yeah. and switch. I want to be like God. I'm made in his image. And and so Satan will always use something that makes us feel less bad about giving in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like very rarely do we just sin because we want to be bad people. Most of the time we're sinning because we want to be our own people, our own person, call our own shots, be our own God. And that's exactly what's happening here is he's twisting it in such a way that makes it look appealing, makes it look not so bad, but ultimately gives her the control yeah. to be her own God instead of being what she was created to be, which was a woman mm -hmm. whose sexuality along with a man together, only together, can they give the full picture and the reflection of God's image? Mm -hmm. God made male and female, it says in Genesis 1.27, in his image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is so cool because right there, immediately when it speaks about us being made in God's image, it immediately speaks to our sexuality. Yeah, and there's lots of ways in which we can, you know, there's there's different ways in which we can reflect God as as image bearers. I mean, we work, God, you know, worked when he created the world. He's working in our lives. We create, we, you know, we reflect his creativity. We can bear his fruit. Um, we can be kind, we can be gentle, mm. different ways in which we can reflect God character. and show his image and show who he is to the world. But what was the first big thing that God mentions? Our sexuality. Yeah. 
sexuality is so much bigger. <laughs> it's so much bigger than than just the act of sex. It's not just a physical act. It's our love, our desire for relationships, our ability to create life, our masculinity, our femininity, mm. all that shows God to the world. Yeah. Sexuality is powerful. It shapes our cultures, our behaviors, and attitudes towards, well, towards each other. Mm-hmm. And because it's so powerful, Satan has used it as a consistent weapon against mm-hmm. us. I mean, he is a clever adversary, yeah. a clever a clever av- enemy. So of course he's going to use this thing that God designed to reflect his image. He designed to be a good thing and he's going to use it against us. He recognizes, Satan recognizes its power. And so he weaponizes our sexuality and it's it's really tied into the fact and it's used as a weapon of spiritual warfare mm-hmm. against us because when we don't live into the the design that God and we're, and we're going to get into what that design looks like here pretty soon exactly what God intended. Yeah, I think the next episode. Yeah, in the, in the next episode we're going to we're going to paint that out. When we don't live into that, it is sin. Yeah. Because it's, it is a moral issue for us as Christians. God has cast this vision. He's told us what's right and what's wrong. And when we don't live into that, yeah. when we disobey, it is sin. And so Satan has capitalized on that and really turned it uh, and, and has used the fact that it is not just it, it, it's a spiritual issue yeah. <laughs> as well. I think Julie Slattery, um, I think she has a quote that's often referenced where she says every sexual issue is really a spiritual one. Yeah, it's a it's a spiritual issue. Satan is the enemy of our sexuality and he's the enemy of our souls. Yeah, and he recognizes the power that sexuality has had not only in our individual lives but in our culture mm. at large. And so he has been working from the very beginning of time to try and shape our cultures um, with really these misleading lies about what what our sexuality is for. Yeah. And what is right and what is wrong and really mm-hmm. reshaping the morality of our sexual ethics. I read an article by a man named Wayne Jackson who did a really great kind of summary of Vance Packard's investigative journalism in the 1960s. Um, Vance Packard, over a span of four years, he interviewed 300 professional psychologists, sociologists, etc. And he surveyed approximately 2,000 people with their kind of change in um, attitudes with progressive um, sexuality in both America and Europe. And a lot of his findings were published in a book called The Sexual wilderness. And in this book, he kind of outlines some of the cultural shift that occurred throughout the sexual revolution. So I'm just going to highlight some of those points that Wayne Jackson um, kind of helped identify through all of that, all that research in our conversation today. The first being actually something that started long before the revolution of the 60s and 70s. 
And this was in the era of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, something called rationalism. Hmm. So one of the first things that contributed towards the shift in cultural sexual ethics was rationalism. The idea that human reason is able to create moral standards for living without any divine knowledge, without any supernatural insight, really seeking to discredit any revelation of the Bible, and through human reason and logic alone, figure out the best way to live. Yeah, because, I mean, that that makes sense if you're trying to, you know, rationalize your own code of ethics, then if the Bible isn't authoritative and you can degrade its authority or diminish, that's probably a better word, diminish its authority, then how can it tell you to live? Right. If it doesn't have authority, then it can't tell you how to live. So you're left at figuring that out for your own self. Yep. Just through your own rational thought. And so this kind of wave of rationalism in the Enlightenment era was one of the first steps to our kind of modern understanding of sexual ethics today. The second that they identify is Darwinism. The origin of the species, um, that very first edition, and this is kind of a fun fact, it sold out the first day. All 1,025 copies. Wow. I know. If only we could write a book and have it sell out like that the first day. Well, we haven't actually tried to write a book yet, so... You don't know. Well, that's our goal. I'm going to try to sell out 1,026 <laughs> copies on the first day. Yeah. I'll do Darwin by one. Um, and so we can see, or well, I guess, Amber, how would you say this book could have influenced a sexual ethic? Well, it makes sense because the, the, the issue of origins does so much when for our for our identity if our origin comes from god and we are made we are created with intention purpose we are created in his image is is actually probably how i should say this if we're created in his image then we are created with intention and purpose mm-hmm. and that does so much to inform our identity and as human beings, we actually are very curious about origins. Like we're cre- we're curious about where we came from. I yep. mean, just look how ancestry genealogies they've exploded in the last decade. And then uh, popular shows like the Antique Roadshow, which just like seeks to find the origins of a piece of furniture. Yeah. Like where did it come from? What's its val? Its value comes from knowing who made it. Mm-hmm. This and- whole conversation is about the origins of the sexual revolution <laughs> yeah, and when it was made, and so. Knowing our our origin does something for our identity and place value on us. Mm-hmm. And so if our origin comes from God, we have value because we were created by God. But if our origin just comes from random chance right. throughout billions of years, then we really only have as much value as we as human beings have decided to impart on each other. Mm. There's not a source. We are just another cosmic accident <laughs> in, oh, so sad. in the universe and so it yeah it really becomes our, our our value as humans is is dependent on what we decide it is as humans mm. 
And to piggyback off of that, another um, kind of influence in that same era is just the era of scientific discovery. And so kind of following the line of thought that, you know, we are searching for our own answers. In the universe. In, yep, in the universe. Obviously, scientific discoveries aren't a problem in and of themselves. They're no. a beautiful way of uh, bringing glory to God. Yeah, they can point us to God. They do point us to God when they're properly studied. I mm -hmm. believe that scientific discoveries bring great awe and wonder. And so it's not the scientific discoveries that are the problem in and of themselves, but it's the arrogance. Mm. It's the arrogance that scientific discovery brought to a whole era of humanity that thought, look, we are our own gods. Look, we mm -hmm. can find the answers to the universe. Yes. And so if I can find the answer for the universe, I can also give the answers for my own life. Which, by the way, they still don't have an answer. <laughs> and so scientific, scientific discovery always does come up empty. Mm -hmm. And yet it has influenced kind of this search for finding meaning for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I could totally see that. Another that was identified in this, this very intensive study by Vance Packard was the idea of wars throughout the 20th century. If you think of a century that was as bloody, <laughs> like, can you think of a century that was as bloody as the 21st or 20th century? We see in the 20th century between the world wars, the Korean conflict, Vietnam, um, that these had a very detrimental effect on our nation in several ways. You know, first of all, War tears families apart. Yeah. And so people become isolated. They become lonely. Um, wars force women to leave the home and seek out jobs in order to provide. Yeah. Well, I think it shifted during and especially during that time where that responsibility really was more on men than it was on women. Right. To provide for the family. It shifted that responsibility because the men were gone, and now the responsibility was shifted onto the women to right. provide for their homes. And there wasn't an infrastructure for that for working women at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, like today, there are so many ways that working mothers can succeed in the workplace and at home. Yeah, but that infrastructure was not in place in the 1940s no, when women were taking the factory line. Yeah, they they rose up because of necessity. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the work environment wasn't it wasn't designed it it wasn't catered to them to also be able to allow them to thrive in the family environment too. Yeah, I mean it's something that they're still working for with equity in the workplace today. Mm -hmm. You know, the to support working mothers. Um but the the warfare, especially the weaponry of mass destruction in this era, it contributed to a mood of living for the moment. Like, you might not have tomorrow. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. And so you live for these intense experiences. And so we can see where sexual gratification wow, kind of... Wow, interesting. I never thought about that before. Yeah, how that fits right into that narrative. That instant gratification... Because I might not have tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That Wow. Yeah. I could see how that really kind of shaped perspective. 
and especially in the 60s, 70s, that free love movement with, you know, the Korean and the Vietnam War and kind of all of that in the backdrop, hearing stories still of the world wars that your grandparents or parents were in, like that really would shape perspective that we don't necessarily have in the front of our mind today, Mm -hmm. but we see the side effects of it. Also technological advancement. I heard this quote and I don't know where I heard it, but it's true that for as long as men and women have been having children, they've been trying to figure out how not to, Mm. which is, it's kind of a coy, like little Uh phrase, yeah. but it's a true reality. Definitely. Yeah, it's definitely true. That we've separated the recreational pleasure of sex from the procreative factor. And those are two distinct realities of sex, Mm -hmm. but not always something that we have control over. Yeah. Clearly, um, with a number of unwanted pregnancies. Yeah, and we have better technology today to prevent them than we've ever had in the past. And in 1954, this was really when two doctors discovered a drug that would become the start of what we know today as the pill or the birth control pill. And within only a dozen years, more than 6 million women, 6 million women were taking the pill. And while contraceptive isn't an intrinsic evil in and of itself, there is uh, absolutely no question that it incited sort of this idea of um, freedom and, and control, I guess, over your sexuality, over your... yeah. How, how you want to use your sex. Well, and it, I, find it, I, I find it a little bit shocking, and maybe I shouldn't be so surprised, but that that many women within that short a period of time were on it. Like it shows how much they wanted to have that control. That control over, and, and, that, and that freedom without even knowing what the long-term health ramifications could be. Yeah. I mean, in a dozen years... To have that many women, like six million women, like you you wouldn't know. And and now we understand better. Mm-hmm. But like for that to have been so so popular, it really shows that that underlying desire, which is shouldn't probably be as surprising, but but definitely had a major influence when you're thinking about the free love movement, um, or even how that can incite kind of the promiscuity that you can have sex with whoever whenever you want. Without mm-hmm. the consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, family planning um, dynamics changed um, because of the pill and delayed, you know, start of families. Studies have shown um, that with shifting family dynamics, with no fault divorce being introduced, with increased family estrangement. Um, that that contributed to accelerated sexual experiences for youth. And so there are a lot of statistics that show correlations between um, whether it's broken families, whether it's estranged you know, parents, and just these changing family dynamics in specifically the 20th century and how that contributed to an increase in accelerated sexual experiences for young people. Hmm. Also, the entertainment industry, which we kind of talked about at the beginning, yeah. and how media shapes our perceptions. Um, there's an entire chapter actually titled in Packard's book that traces 
from the 1930s through the modern era um, when his book was written that show the way that media has become increasingly sexually explicit. You know, if you think about the 1940s when TVs were first introduced into the home, <laughs> you get shows like, you know, I Love Lucy. Uh-huh. And, um... Well, Ricky and Lucy were sleeping in separate beds. Right. In yeah. that show. <laughs> exactly. And then now, you know, you have sexually explicit pornographic material that's being included in some of the most popular HBO shows. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't need a book to tell us that media has become increasingly sexual. But I th- And what that does to our sexual appetites and expectations. Right. Because Jesus told us that sexual sin begins, you know, in the mind and the heart. Mm. Yeah. And so what we're feeding our eyes, our ears, our minds, that will change our, like you said, our sexual appetites, what we consider to be normal or moral and influence the way that we act. And then finally, kind of an overall loss of childhood innocence Mm. in our modern era, which is interesting because in some ways we have delayed adulthood. You know, we have, um, we have adults that are still living at home with their parents and, you know, there can be responsible reasons for that, uh-huh. um, but sort of the the stereotype, like, yes. couch potato that's not getting a job, that's, you know, mooching off of their parents' finances, you know, that is not... Uh, like, living with your parents and still acting like a child. Yes, yes. That is a problem mm-hmm. um, for how God would have us to live. And so we've, like, kids are growing up faster and then staying in this like limbo where they're no longer children but they're not adults but they're not adults yet and they're specifically losing their innocence of childhood yeah which we unpacked a couple episodes ago how innocence is actually worth protecting yeah it's not the same as purity but that there's still value in protecting innocence yes because of you know what goes into our what goes into our mind our eyes our ears <laughs> can definitely inform what we desire with our heart So some of the things outlined, you know, were mature music choices, makeup that's marketed to preteens. I think Instagram itself has become a major issue in the lives of teenage and preteen girls. Um, Facebook and Instagram recently released uh, a statement where they acknowledge that they understand it's contributing to teenage depression just because of the images and um, the things that teenagers are being exposed to for their own self-esteem. Mm. And so there's this really the standard of um, sexually accented dress for increasingly younger and younger girls, these images that we're seeing, yeah, girls trying to look older than they are. And particularly on, in pictures that yeah. they put on social media. Yeah. And kids are the ones with the most free time, right? Um, and this has been true since child labor laws went into effect in the early 1900s. It increased free time for kids and like, that's a great, wonderful thing that child labor laws went into effect. But with that, we have... We didn't fill their time with other constructive things. <laughs> and so kids have more time to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. The 1950s really uh, capitalized on that by beginning to market to independent teenagers who were driving their own vehicles, had their own disposable 
income. You know, it was the post-war era. And so these were the booming 1950s. And so you really started to see teenage advertisements increase in the 50s. And these were the people going on dates, you know, with little to no supervision. You have developing hormones, all this time on your hands, money, and then raw exposure to, um, in today's era, all of these images, oftentimes sexually explicit. And so you have this loss of innocence and a direct effect on behavior with youth. Yeah, you can see the dots connecting there for sure. So a lot happening in society. And that is just scratching the surface. Like there's so much to be said about each of those things, but can kind of give you a scope of some of the sociology and ways that our American culture specifically has been shaped throughout history. We can see how, as a society, we've fallen for the lie that the world knows sex better than God does. Mm-hmm. We were seeking freedom. And what we got was bondage instead. Alfred Kinsey himself admitted on his deathbed that he never found the sexual liberation he was searching for. Hmm. And he had experimented with everything. Every dark and deviant sexual practice. He had to do more and more risky things to find sexual fulfillment. Even abusing himself. He became a slave to sexual liberation. It controlled him. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Romans 1 tells us in verses 21 that therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If there is one verse to summarize the history of the sexual revolution, I think that is it. And praise God that he is above all of it, that he is blessed forever as the verse ends. Because the truth is that we will always be controlled by sexuality if we allow it to control us. Mm. Because true sexual freedom isn't found in a revolution. And the world is still looking for it there. We're still looking for freedom in sexual revolutions. Mm-hmm. They're just going by a different name. The same sex revolution, gender revolution. But there's no freedom in defining sex for ourselves. No, there's the not. The free love movement wasn't free. It left us in bondage. It created slaves to sexual pleasure. The after effects of AIDS, STDs, divorce rates, abortion, and none of it has satisfied because that's not freedom. We don't need no. a revolution. What we need is a revelation. Amen. We need the revelation of God's word. It can seem kind of overwhelming. I mean, listening to all this, listening to the history, listening to how we got to where we are, it can seem overwhelming. It can seem um, discouraging. <laughs> it can almost seem a little bit hopeless. And thank God that we know where our hope comes from, that we don't find hope in the world and mm. the condition of the world. Or, yeah, this would be very hopeless, but we are we are called to a greater purpose. We are called as believers. We, we know where our hope is, and so we get to live out of knowing where our hope is. 
and we get to look at a world that seems so hopeless and seems so dark and seems so depraved and say, it's not too late. Yeah. Because I have that hope. Mm. I'm only human. Mm -hmm. You can have that hope too. Yeah. And that hope is found in God's word. It's found in God's word. And we can look at we can look at the story of Jonah and mm. the Ninevites, and they were doomed to destruction. I mean, God sent Jonah yeah. to Nineveh to tell them that destruction was coming unless they repented. Mm-hmm. And they did. They did. They did. And a little bit to Jonah's disappointment, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but it was through the preaching of the word. But it was through the preaching of God's word that they repented and they turned from their sin and that can happen that can happen in our society as well which is why even in the midst of seeming so much dark and hopelessness like we still have the heart to share this message because you can't snuff out the light of god and the hope that god brings and the freedom that god brings when his word is shared and his truth is shared people's lives change Mm. and the chains of their bondage are broken. broken. Amen. Amen. And so next week we're going to be talking about the sexual revelation of God's word. Mm. What does God's word actually say sex is for? Why did God create us as sexual beings? And what is the hope that his message brings for all of us? Looking forward to next week. Yeah. Until then, know and be known.